well, uh, just in case you haven't met me before, I'm uh, Pete Jackson. I'm, I'm not from uh, this church here. I'm from a church that's in partnership with Rotherham Evangelical Church called Christchurch Central from uh, Sheffield City Centre. And it's, uh, it's good to be here with you again. Um, we're going to look at that passage, 1 Peter 3. Um, but as we do, I just want to put a question up for us. Um, hold on a sec. There we are. How can suffering be a good thing? How can suffering be a good thing? Because if you've been following this series that you've been doing in 1 Peter, you'll have noticed that um, Peter the Apostle who wrote this, one of Jesus' first followers, one of the first ever Christian missionaries and preachers of Jesus' good news, has been saying some strange things about suffering. He's been saying, in effect, sometimes suffering, particularly he's talking about suffering because you're a Christian. So not just any old suffering, but suffering that comes to you because you're a Christian and you're trying to follow Christ. He said, actually, there can be something good about that. So just keep your finger in chapter 3, but look back to chapter 2, verse 19. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. And then verse 21. To this you were called. This is what you're called to if you're a Christian. Unjust suffering. And then chapter 3 verse 14, a bit just before... We, um, before we, we, uh, we read that bit from verse 18, just look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Then he says something even more direct in verse 17. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He says, suffering as a Christian, suffering because you're a Christian, can be a commendable thing, a blessed thing, a better thing. Now that's strange, isn't it? That's, that goes against the grain, that's counterintuitive, that's the opposite to what we think, isn't it? And basically... From verse 18 onwards, a bit we're looking at this morning, gives us the reason. Peter's backing up what he said about suffering, that it can be a good thing, a commendable thing, a blessed thing, a better thing. And he backs it up with a reason. So just look at the beginning of verse 18, and the first word is the word for. That pretty much means the same thing as the word because. They said all this stuff about suffering, and he's saying, let me back it up to you, let me explain it to you. Suffering can be a good thing because... And then he gives us all the reasons in this passage. Now please, please remember, Peter isn't just sort of talking about ideas here. He's talking to a bunch of Christians who are scattered through Asia Minor who were really suffering. They were suffering. They were having a tough time. And it was coming to them precisely because they were Christians. No other reason. Just because they were Christians. And they said, yep, I follow Christ. Yep. Jesus is my Lord. And because of that, they were suffering all sorts of things from people around them. 
um, their friends and neighbours misunderstood them. Maybe the authorities and the powers that be were suspicious of them. Maybe it was difficult for them to hold down a job. Maybe it was difficult for them to be accepted by their friends and neighbours. They were really suffering. Now, this is a bit of a strange passage. I don't know if you noticed as we were reading it that there are lots of stuff in it that just the first time you read it, you're like, huh? Huh? You know, some really strange ideas and uh, words and phrases that we're going to have to get to grips with. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to try our best to get to the bottom of some of the bits that are a bit difficult in this passage, but we're also going to try and do the most important thing, which is here the big thing that Peter is trying to say to us in this part of God's Word. Try and not sort of uh, get lost in the details. We want to be able to see the wood and not get caught up in just looking at all the trees. But we are going to try and get to grips uh, with some of the details. But we don't want to lose the big idea because the big idea is this thing that Peter's trying to say to us. Look, suffering as a Christian can be a good thing. And here's why. And I want to suggest that that's something that's relevant for all of us. We might not be in the exact same situation that Peter's um, first readers were, um, you know, 20 centuries ago nearly now. We might not be in precisely the same situation as them, but, you know, there might be all sorts of ways that we're suffering and facing hardship just for being a Christian. So, for example, maybe you're the person who always misses out on a promotion at work because you're not keen on working on Sundays. Or maybe you're someone who's, you know, you're misunderstood um, at the office. People think you're sort of holier than thou because you won't join in with the, you know, the smutty humour at work. Maybe your neighbours think you're weird. Maybe your former friends think you've lost it ever since you became a Christian and you've become a bit of a wuss. Maybe it's not you, maybe it's your kids who come home from school and say, well, the science teacher today was just taking the mickey out of people who think that God made the world. Or maybe you're a nurse and you've heard about the cases in the news last year, recently, of people getting into trouble who work for the NHS just because they've spoken about their faith to a patient. They've offered to pray for somebody that was ill and they end up finding themselves in trouble, maybe even losing their job over it. Well, there are lots of ways that we might encounter bother, lots of ways that we might encounter suffering, hardship of a sort for being a Christian. We might be misunderstood, overlooked, discriminated against, sidelined, treated as irrelevant and ridiculous. And if not you, then maybe somebody you know is going through that. And you need to figure out how to help them. And if not you now, well, the Bible suggests that if you're a Christian, you, you ought to pretty much expect that if not now, then at some point in the future, you'll go through the mill for being a Christian. Simply for saying, yep, I follow Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. The Bible suggests that that will come to most Christians at some point in their life. So, we all need to get this straight in our head. If Peter is saying... Suffering can be a good thing. Suffering as a Christian, there's something good about it. Well, we all need to get that straight in our heads, don't we? So that's what we're going to try and do this morning. And we're going to look at what Peter says and we're going to look at it under two headings. first one is this. How can suffering be a good thing? Because Christ also suffered and then was raised up to glory. Just look at verse 18 there in the passage. 
Let me read it to you. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. If you suffered for doing God's will, Peter's saying, look, if you suffer for being a Christian, then you're in good company. You're in very good company. Jesus, the Christ, also suffered. In fact, he didn't just suffer, he died. Jesus died. But the point he's making is that Jesus dying, his suffering, wasn't the end of the story. Just look at verse 18. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus died, but God raised him up again. His suffering wasn't the end of the story. It wasn't the point. It wasn't the place where God left him. After he was suffered, he was raised again to a new kind of life, a kind of life empowered by God's Spirit. He was raised to life by the Spirit, to eternal life, to a life of no suffering. And just have a look at the very bottom of the passage, where we find out what happened to Jesus after he was raised again from the dead. Verse 22 who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. He says, look, he suffered for God and then he was raised up to an eternal life of glory. And he's saying, look, if you're, if you're suffering for being a Christian, then you're in good company. You need to know that someone else suffered before you and look what God did for them. Look what God did for Jesus. He raised him up. The suffering wasn't the end of the story. It was just a brief thing. And then Jesus was raised up to an eternal life of glory and seated by God's throne in heaven. He's saying, look, if God did it for Jesus, he'll do it for you. God did it for Jesus, so he will do it for you. Suffering now... And then glory later. That's the pattern of the Christian life. Suffering now. Glory later. In actual fact, Peter's been saying that since the very beginning of the letter. I don't know if you were here back in the week when you did chapter 1. But just turn back to it. Chapter 1, verse 6. And Peter says, right at the beginning of his letter, In this you greatly rejoice. Though so now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come to see your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. He's saying that pattern, suffering now for a little while, but glory later, that's the pattern of the Christian life, and that's the pattern of Jesus' life himself. He suffered. He died. But God raised him up. It was like after all the negative stuff that had happened, God gave him a massive tick. And said, yep, he belongs to me, and he's going to come, and he's going to rule with me. And the Bible teaches that that's the same thing that God promises to his people. But there's more. Just come back to chapter 3, verse 18. There's more. You see, Jesus is suffering to the point of death. He's described in such a way that Peter's reminding all the people that are reading his letter that it's Jesus' death that actually guarantees that future glory. 
It's not just that Jesus is an example that we all get to follow. It's actually more than that. His death is what makes it sure that even though we suffer now, we'll go to eternal glory later. Now look at what he says. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus was righteous. When Jesus suffered, he was the ultimate example of somebody who didn't deserve to face that suffering. There was no way that anyone could have said, well, he deserved it in some way. He was righteous. That means he always did what was right in relationship with other people and in relationship with God. Nobody could point the finger at him and say, you did me something unfair then. You did me wrong. That was his relationship with everybody and his relationship with God. He always did what was right. He was righteous. In God's sight, he'd not done anything wrong. So what he went through, nobody could claim that he deserved it in any way. Unjust suffering. And yet it says that he died for sins. That's strange, isn't it? He died for sins. That's just a sort of a shorthand way, a kind of a text message way of saying he died to take the punishment for sins. Now, that's strange, isn't it? Because he didn't have any sins of his own. He was righteous. So whose sins was he dying for? Well, the next bit says, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. That's you and I, the unrighteous. On the cross, Jesus was doing the ultimate swap. The ultimate swap. Him for us. Him for us. He was righteous. And he didn't deserve to die the sort of God-forsaken, painful, shameful death that he did. That's actually the death that you and I deserve for our sins, for being unrighteous. But the righteous swapped with the unrighteous. When he suffered, it was like he was carrying our sins on his back, even though they didn't belong to him. It was like he'd loaded them up in his own backpack and he was carrying them on himself. As if they belonged to him. And he died our death. And he did it, well what does it say why he did it? Look at the verse again. For Christ died for sins, once for all the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. To bring restoration between our relationship with God as unrighteous people and with God. Bring restoration. A relationship that goes on forever. That, that phrase, to bring you to God, that means relationship now, but it also means that eternal glory later. To bring you to God, now and forever. He died in our place so that we could be raised up to join him in his place. what it was all about. In other words, Peter is saying this, Jesus suffered for you to guarantee your glory. Now look, if we take that on board and we think, yep, that's really true, I believe it. We remember that that's what Christ suffered for us and has won for us, surely having to go through a little bit of suffering for a very short time. It's worth it, isn't it? 
makes it seem a lot smaller, doesn't it? The suffering, even though it might go on for a long time, even though it might be very painful, even though it might be extremely difficult, we might be thinking, when will this end? Well, Jesus suffered also, but he did it to win for you an eternity of glory. To bring you to God. And that's something that a little bit of suffering can't, can't undo, can't spoil, can't wreck. Makes it seem a lot smaller, doesn't it? Whatever suffering we have to go through, Jesus has rescued us from the worst kind of suffering, the kind of suffering we deserve. A God-forsaken eternity. He's rescued us from the suffering we deserve, the worst kind of suffering, the punishment for our sins. So whatever it is that we go through, it's small, isn't it? By comparison, it might not feel small. But Peter's saying, look, do the maths. Christ died to bring you to God. So that's the first thing. How can suffering be a good thing? Well, because Christ also suffered and then was raised up to glory. And that means, look, if God did it for him, he'll do it for you. And he'll do it for you because Jesus won it for you. He died to guarantee it. He saved you from the worst kind of suffering to give you the kind of glory that you don't deserve. Second thing. How can suffering be a good thing? Well, the second reason is because Christ's enthronement means victory. Enthronement, that is the day Jesus, takes up, took, take, uh, Jesus took up his throne. That, we were reading about it in verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. That's a position of power and authority. It's a position of being king of the universe. Jesus has been enthroned. And uh, Jesus' enthronement means victory. Well, now here's where it might get a little bit complicated, okay? So... We need to sort of, you know, buckle our seatbelts on and get ready for the ride. In fact, I hope you packed a lunch because, you know, this is where we're going to get into some of the difficult bits of this passage. We'll try and keep it simple. If I lose you, then you can always come and ask Ian afterwards um, to explain it all a bit better. Okay, so Christ and throne is victory for his team. Now, where am I getting that from? Well, look at verse 19. Through whom also he, that's Jesus, went and preached to the spirits in prison. By the power of the Spirit, the one who'd raised Jesus from the dead, Christ also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Simple, yeah? Huh? What? Hang on a minute. Who are these spirits in prison? Who are they? Now, often in the Bible, the word spirits refers to angels. And lots of people who've struggled over this passage and Christians in the past, lots of them, not all of them, have thought this is talking about angels. But also sometimes the word spirits refers to people, the spirits of people who've died. Especially, yeah, spirits of people, especially dead people. Whoever they are, well the next verse, verse 20, tells us a bit more about them. Spirits uh, in prison, verse 20, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now if you know your Bible a little bit, you'll know the story of Noah's ark. It's a, a favourite among the kids. It's weird, isn't it? All the, all the stories that get a lot of airtime with kids, they're all the animal stories, aren't they? Jonah and the whale, Noah's ark, that sort of a thing. 
even though Noah's Ark actually is a pretty horrendous story. We, th- we think of it as a cute thing, you know, with all the animals two by two onto the ark and some nice songs and Mr. Noah with his big smile and his big bushy beard and, you know, he's sort of like a, you know, an ancient Dr. Doolittle welcoming all the animals onto the ark. Actually, it's a pretty horrendous story of God getting to the end of his tether. He's not the sort of God that loses his patience. He's not the sort of God that, you know, has a wildly bad temper. He's slow to anger. And yet, he comes to the end of his tether with humanity. They're in such a mess. And they're destroying his world and they're destroying each other. And so he says, right, that's it. I'm going to flood the whole lot. I'm going to give the whole world a bath and wash humanity off the face of the earth. But in his mercy, he saves one family. Noah and his kids and their wives. His mercy saves them all. Now, that's, what, that's the time period that Peter's talking about here. He says, these spirits are in prison, and in the past they disobeyed back in the days when Noah was building the ark. He was building this great big boat that God would save his family and lots of animals in as well. Save them from the big flood that was coming. And um, he said, and he's saying, look, these spirits, they disobeyed back then. So that sort of tells us who they are, doesn't it? Who was it was disobeying back then that God lost his, uh, got to the end of his tether with? Well, it was people. You go back to Genesis chapter 6, 7 and 8. It was people. It was humanity that God was almost sick of the sight of. And yet, he didn't lose his temper. He waited patiently. And while the ark was being built, there was a chance for these people to turn back to God to repent God waited patiently while the ark was being built but they disobeyed they ignored the warning signs they ignored the fact that God was there building an ark right in front of them a massive boat to save them from the flood they rejected it they disobeyed so that's who they are for me it seems to be clear that they're the people who didn't listen back in the days when Noah was building an ark Okay, now that doesn't that sort of gets us one step closer, doesn't it? Okay, so next question: uh, prison, spirits in prison it describes them as prison. What prison? Where? What is it on about? Well, in the Bible, death or the grave is sometimes called. Well, sometimes you read the Old Testament, you find it's called Sheol. Was a word the ancient Hebrews had for it. It's sometimes thought of as a prison. Now it's not the same as hell. Hell is where people go, spirit and body. Spirit and body. On the day when Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead. But between then and now, uh, between now and then, the Bible says those who rebel against God, they're in the grave. They're in the place of the dead. And it's like a prison. Where rebels against God go to await judgment. It's not purgatory that the Roman Catholics believe in, because you can't get out of it. But it's like being in a prison. Their spirits are in a prison waiting for judgment day. It's like being in a prisoner of war camp, waiting for the day when the war is over. And they'll finally find out, they'll finally go to their fate as war criminals. So, that's the prison. These spirits are in prison. They disobeyed in the day of Noah's Ark. 
So, when did Jesus go preach to them? When did Jesus go and preach to them? Now again, some people think, aha, that's easy, it's obvious, isn't it? Um, Easter Friday, Jesus died. Easter Sunday, Jesus rose again. He obviously had to do something on Easter Saturday. You know, what was he doing? Just hanging around, twiddling his thumbs? And people go, aha, that's when he did this. Because these are spirits in prison. And so Jesus, being a spirit himself at that point, because he was dead, he could go and preach to them. The only problem with that is what the passage actually says. Just look again at verse 18, the very bottom of the verse, and get, get the order of events. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Put to death in the body, Easter Friday. Made alive by the Spirit, Easter Sunday. By whom, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. He went to preach to the spirits in prison by the power of the Holy Spirit, the one who raised him from the dead. So it's, it comes after, doesn't it? it? Comes after he's raised again from the dead. Through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. It's after he's been raised by the Spirit that he goes and preaches to them. Now, it gets even more clear when we remember that. The word in verse 19, through whom also he went, that word went, is the same word as gone in verse 22. He who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. It's the same word. And that's the order of events, isn't it? Jesus died, he rose again, and then after appearing to his disciples, he was taken up to heaven to the right hand of God. And I think what Peter is saying is that it's the same going as verse 22. When Jesus went up to heaven at God's right hand, he also, by the Spirit, preached a message to these spirits in prison. In other words, Jesus didn't literally go to preach to them. But his going up to God's right hand, his ascending to his throne, sent a message to the whole universe and especially to the spiritual realms and to the place of the dead where rebels against Jesus are, are waiting for judgment day and it sent a message to them saying Jesus has won the king has come God has won he's defeated death he's secured salvation for his people he's conquered sin and he's taking up his throne and Jesus being ascended up to the throne of heaven, sent that. It was like a, bro a public broadcast, a preaching by the Spirit to the whole spiritual realm, saying, Jesus is king, he's won. And therefore, to all of those who ever stand in the way of Jesus and of God, and of Jesus and God's rule, past, present or future, it sent a clear message of defeat. Christ's enthronement means victory and that means defeat for those who rebel. It was coronation day, you see, and coronation day sends a very clear message to those who want to rebel against the king, doesn't it? It's saying, well, tough. Tough. The king's been installed anyway, whether you like it or not. It's like... There's been a war running for the whole of history and these spirits in prison, they were, they were captured. 
at the begin, pretty near the beginning of the war during Noah's time. They rebelled back then and they've been captured and they've been in prison waiting for Judgment Day. It's like they're in a prisoner of war camp. And Jesus' resurrection and when he goes up to take up his throne, that's the day that he wins the war outright. That's the day that basically the war's decided. So of course that only means one thing for those guys that are sat in the prisoner of war camp, doesn't it? Defeat. They're finally defeated. Here's the rub though. Verse 20. The way Peter describes them. He says that they disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. It wasn't like they didn't have a chance to repent. They did. God waited patiently. He built the ark right in front of them. They could have turned back to him at any point. But they disobeyed. They disobeyed that message. And so now the only thing message they get is the proclamation of Jesus by the Spirit saying, you're finished. And that word disobeyed, well Peter's used it earlier on in the letter for somebody else, another group of people. Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. He quotes from a bit in the Old Testament and then after that quote he says, they stumble because they disobey the message. They disobey the message. See, Peter's drawing us a, a little bit of a link between the people who were ignoring the gospel message in Peter's day and the people who ignored the message of repent. God's building an ark. He's going to flood the world back in Noah's day. So it's not just a message to those rebels that rebelled all at the beginning of the war. It's a message to anybody who rebels now at the end of the war. Including actually those who were persecuting Peter's readers, the Christians that he was writing to. So, defeat to those who rebel, but then secondly, salvation for Christians. Just look at what Peter goes on to say. Let's read verse 20 again. Who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, that's the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. God saved Noah and his family through the ark. And that's a picture of something else says Peter. It's a picture of baptism which he says now saves you. Noah and his family were kept safe through the waters of God's judgment. The waters of God's judgment flooded the earth but they were kept safe. They passed safely through the water in the ark and they were not judged. And the waters of judgment that were poured out not on us but on Jesus. That's what baptism represents. Jesus went through the waters of judgment for us. And in getting baptised, well, in getting baptised you're saying basically, yes, Jesus' death, when he got covered with the waters of God's judgment, he died the righteous for the unrighteous. That was for me. And I accept it. And I trust in him and I belong to him now. 
That's what we're doing in baptism. But Peter sort of makes it a bit stronger than that, doesn't he? He says, baptism saves you. Baptism saves you. Just like the ark saved them. That's a bit odd, isn't it? Wasn't there a guy on the cross next to Jesus? Jesus was crucified between two criminals, wasn't he? Wasn't there a guy on the cross next to Jesus? He was hung there and he was a criminal. And he actually turned to Jesus for forgiveness while he was hung there on the cross. And he said, Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, tell you what, today you'll be with me in paradise. He was saved, wasn't he, from God's judgment by Jesus. But, you know, he didn't really have time to get baptised. He was hung there on the cross, dying. They didn't, the Roman soldiers sort of didn't let you down for that sort of a thing. Oh, well, he needs to get baptised. Right, you know, down you come for five minutes and we'll get some water. They sort of weren't like that. So what's going on? How can, how, you know, baptism saves you? What is he talking about? Does putting water on you save you? Well, no, Peter's clear, isn't he? about how it is that baptism saves you. Look at verse 21. This water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body. It doesn't, it doesn't save you because there's something special about the water. It's not the, the, the washingness of it that saves you. It isn't about washing dirt from your body. It's about asking God for a good conscience. That's what he says. Not the removal of dirt from the body. Verse 21 but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. Now, it could say, and probably should say, pledge for a good conscience. In other words, in baptism you're saying, God, please forgive me. Please forgive me. Baptism, in other words, baptism only saves, Peter can only use this language in this way, to say baptism saves you, because baptism in the Bible is about becoming a Christian. Baptism is the outward way of coming to God for forgiveness. You see, back then, uh, in the first century, the preachers didn't say, at the end of their preaching the gospel to people, they didn't say, pray this prayer after me, or, um, you know, tick the box if you want to become a Christian, come down to the front and we'll talk. They didn't say that sort of thing, they said, come and get in the water. They said, come and get baptised. It was the way you showed outwardly what had gone on in your heart. So baptism, you see, baptism saves you in the same way that a wedding ring marries you. In the same way that a wedding ring makes you married. Can you be married without a wedding ring? Yes. Lots of blokes don't even wear one. Of course you can be married without a wedding ring. In actual fact, this is my second wedding ring. I lost my first wedding ring um, in the sea in the south of France. Uh, probably only about a year. It was, yeah, it was probably about 15 months after... Um, after we'd been married. Now I didn't fall out of marriage for those couple of weeks while we bought a new one. I didn't become unmarried because I didn't have the ring on. It's an outward sign and a symbol, isn't it? It's an outward sign and a symbol. There's nothing magical about this ring that has somehow changed me and made me married to my wife Claire. Not in a magical sense. But what does the wedding service say? The wedding service, especially if you do a sort of a trad wedding, it says, with this ring, I the wed. Nobody stops the ceremony at that point and goes, whoa, hang on a minute, rings can do that? That's dangerous, you don't want to get the wrong ring on. No, it's not saying that. It's a sign and a symbol. 
And it's a way of sealing the deal, of saying in public. So if you're a Christian, this is sort of an open brackets bit over here, an aside. If you're a Christian and you're not baptised, well, the Bible says that shouldn't be the case. That shouldn't be the case. It's like being married and not wearing your wedding ring. And who would want to do that? So if you are a Christian and you've not yet been baptised, that might be something you want to speak to Ian about afterwards. Because as far as the Bible's concerned, it's just normal. It's how you show the world that you're a Christian. It's a public way of coming to God for forgiveness. It's putting your wedding ring on. And why would you not want to do that? So the other thing that Peter says that baptism relates to, just look at verse end of verse uh, 21. How does baptism save us? It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is all the power to save us comes not in water coming onto us but in Jesus having risen again from the dead to remember he died and he rose again so that we can not have to go through the suffering that we deserve but we can join him in glory which we don't deserve that's what Peter's saying and that brings it right back to Jesus suffering and rising again and ascending to his throne in heaven doesn't it which is where we started with these spirits in prison In other words, Jesus' enthronement, it means victory and it sends a message, a clear message. A message of defeat to his enemies and a message of salvation to his people. Just like those guys that were saved in the day of Noah's Ark. Now we've looked at some complicated stuff there. So let's just stand back a bit and say, look, what's Peter saying? What's he saying? He's saying, look, Jesus suffered and died and was buried and yet he rose again and he won he rose again to take up a throne the throne of the universe over every other authority like it says in verse 22 with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him and that means defeat for his enemies whether in the past like the guys from Noah's day or the present like the ones who are persecuting Peter's readers. And it means salvation for his people, like the salvation done through Noah's Ark. Jesus' death, resurrection and enthronement is able to forgive us, to bring us back to God, and one day to take us to future eternal glory with him. Which is what baptism is about. In other words, let's put it really simply. What's he saying to his readers? You're on the winning team. That's what he's saying. Your team has won. And suffering like Jesus, and suffering for Jesus' sake, is evidence that you're on the winning team. It's like, it's like the, the team kit. Or the uniform. It's evidence that you're on Jesus' team. So, just look at verse 17. Just before our passage. It's one of the places we started off at the beginning saying, how can Peter say this? Starts to make sense now, doesn't it? It is better, verse 17, if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Here's a question for us all. Are you on the right or the wrong side of Jesus? 
Are you on his team? Verse 22 says that the universe has got a new king. There's been a coronation day. How long do you think he'll be able to put up with rebels? Like in Noah's day, he's waiting patiently. Like in Noah's day, when the ark was being built, he's waiting patiently. He's holding back the floods of judgment. Giving people time to switch teams. Giving people time to switch sides. To put their weapons down and say, I don't want to be a rebel in Jesus' world anymore. I want to be forgiven. I want to join his team. But he won't wait forever. And if you are on his team, if you're a Christian and you are on his team, here's the thing, are you willing to stand up and to suffer for him? Are you willing to wear the team uniform? Are you going to proudly wear the kit? It won't be easy. Peter's not pretending it isn't difficult. If it was easy, he wouldn't have bothered to write about it because these guys would have just been finding it easy. He knew they were finding it hard and that's why he's writing. And that's why God preserved his writing for us. Because it's not easy, it's difficult. It might be really, really costly. Christians throughout history and in other places in the world now have paid the ultimate price for following Jesus and have given their lives. Won't be easy. But you're on the winning team. So it's better, isn't it, to suffer? To suffer for being on Jesus' side for a short time than it is to suffer for an eternity for being on the wrong side. Better to suffer now for being on Jesus' team than to suffer forever for being against him. Let's pray. (coughs) For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus' death and his rising again and his taking up of that throne in heaven. Thank you for all that that means for us, all that that does for us, for those of us who belong to him. I thank you too that he's waiting patiently, just like you waited patiently when the ark was being built. But Jesus is holding back, giving people a chance to turn. And we pray you'd help us Uh, particularly if we're here and we we haven't yet come to Jesus for forgiveness help us to come to that realisation that that's what we need to do not to hold back from coming to him because we're afraid of what it might cost of what people might say to us and we pray if we do belong to him please help us to be willing to suffer for him help us to see it as in comparison a small thing to suffer this little bit for him when he suffered so much for us And when he's won such an eternity of glory for us. We pray in his name and for his glory. Amen.